Well, hello, my name's Matt. Um, I'm one of the leaders here. I should have introduced myself when I popped up first time, just randomly out of the blue, but uh, we're not always as organized as we aspire to be. Um, my car, if you've traveled in it, you'll know, is getting on a little bit, and it has some features. Uh, if you've driven, it has some features. One of the more tricky ones is uh, my petrol gauge. Um, my petrol gauge has this attractive feature, which means that it looks fine, um, but it overreads by about you know an eighth of a tank, which is which is really happy. We discovered this the hard way um, by running out of petrol. Well, it still looked like we had some, and every now and then, I doubt it's really broken, and I kind of press on. This one time, we decided just to see if it was still broken, and it turns out it was. And do you know how convenient it is to run out of petrol? It's really inconvenient. Uh, now, now when I see it telling me I've got an eighth of a tank left, uh, I see it, I don't believe it. Uh, I believe what it's signing to me really um, is that I'm empty and I go and do something about it. I fill up early. Well, we've been working our way for the last year and a half through the Gospel of Luke, which is Luke's telling of the life story of Jesus. And today, we've taken it section by section, just seeing what comes to us. Today, we come to a bit where we'll meet a blind man, but we'll meet a blind man who sees, and uh, he does something as a result. And uh, what's going to happen is Joe is going to come and read to us, and we're in the Gospel of Luke uh, on uh, chapter 18, and uh, right at the end of that, chapter 18, verse 35. And in these um, blue Bibles we got here, that's page 1052. So page 1052. Oh, page 1053. Thank you for that excellent correction. Chapter 18, it's looking for a big 18. The chapters are the big chunks. Verse 35, a small 35. That's the small numbers there. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Thanks, Joe. Let's pray. Father God, please would you help us to understand uh, and uh, to hear uh, what you're saying today. Please would you help us to be people who see. Amen. So what have we got here? Well, the story revolves around a life-changing encounter between a blind man and Jesus. 
And what I want us to get our heads around, first of all, is the situation the blind man was in because he was helpless and desperate in a way that's not completely obvious to us today. First, he's helpless. I mean, he's blind and there's absolutely nothing he can do to change that no matter what. There's no medicine that's going to help him. There's no doctor who can fix that for him. There's no robotic brain implant that he can try out. No money can buy a situation for him. It's, it's a hopeless and unchangeable situation. And second, that, that leaves him dependent. There's no Jericho welfare state. Um, there's no disability payment coming his way. There's no provision, so it seems, even from his own friends or family, because we meet him begging at the side of the road. He looks like he's totally dependent on the generosity of passers-by in order to get through at all. And for just a moment, I want us to think about where this sits in the wider story of Jesus that Luke is telling in his gospel. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, just two weeks back, we met Jesus' encounter with a rich ruler. We saw this guy who was held captive by his many possessions and sat right next to that rich ruler. You've got this poor, helpless, insignificant, dependent, blind beggar. That's some sharp contrast, isn't it? And that's what it's meant to be, too. This guy is a nobody uh, with nothing. He's just sat there helpless at the edge of the road. And while he's sitting there, and perhaps his ears are sensitized to make up for what he lacks in sight, well, he picks up something has changed. There are people. There are lots of people. There's excited chatter. There's an air of expectancy around him. What's happening? What is he not seeing? Jesus of Nazareth, this passing by the crowds, tell him, Jesus of Nazareth, the, the, the Jesus who comes from Nazareth, he must have heard that name before uh, because he makes a quick connection. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, he cries out. You see, the crowd call him Jesus of Nazareth, but the blind man sees something that nobody else has seen. Son of David, he says, and in Luke's telling of the story of Jesus, this blind man is the very first one to use that title for Jesus, to make that connection. Jesus is the son of David. So what? I mean, for starters, if you know your Christmas story, you'll probably know it was Mary and Joseph with the baby in the manger on that first Christmas. So why is he being called the son of David? The blind man got this Jesus confused with another? That would make sense. That would be excusable. Well, there is a very famous David in the story of God's people. Uh, David the giant slayer, victorious over Goliath. He went on to become King David. And King David was this high point of the whole history of Israel, the whole story of God's people. He was their greatest ruler, the one who unites the 12 tribes, the one who expands the boundaries, the one who's victorious over all his enemies, the one chosen by God himself to rule, the one whose closeness to God was unequaled. That's the David we're talking about here. And when this blind man calls Jesus the, the son of David, he's saying more than just that David was Jesus' dad, well, actually, the one thing he's definitely not saying is David was Jesus' dad. He means Jesus sits in the family line of David. That kind of son of relationship, when they used it back then, could kind of point a long way back up the tree. 
Uh, you could use it to connect to someone who was much further back in the past without upsetting anyone or anyone feeling like you were having a laugh. Um, Jesus is in the family line of David, and we know that because the genealogy, his family line, his family history is laid out for us back in chapter 3. We read through it uh, a good while back. You can trace that line all the way back from Jesus to this great David, and from that great David even further back again. But by calling Jesus the son of David, he is saying something bigger again. He's, he's identifying Jesus as someone who's been anticipated for generations. Someone God's people will have been waiting for and longing for. A, a promised king who's going to come from David's line and establish God's kingdom and rule God's people forever. You see, way, way back in David's day, he was given an extraordinary promise from God. You can find it in the book of 2 Samuel that's way back in the Bible in chapter 7. When your days are over, David's told, and you rest with your ancestors, I'll raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I'll establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Maybe you do know, maybe you don't, but David's immediate son was a guy called King Solomon, and he saw some of that prophecy fulfilled. He built a famous temple for God in Jerusalem, all golden and shiny and made out of fancy stuff. He ruled a great kingdom for many years. He enjoyed wisdom and wealth, but but then he died. And things went south. The kingdom was torn in two. One half was destroyed, the other half exiled. And then oppressed. God had promised that one of David's descendants would establish God's kingdom and rule over it forever. But that couldn't be Solomon. So God's people had looked ahead and dreamed and hoped for the day when the true son of David would come. They were looking for and anticipating a son of David. You'll see that in some of the other gospels. Could this be the son of David, people asked. They were anticipating him. So how ironic then that this blind man is the first one in Luke's whole gospel to see that Jesus is the promised son of David. He's finally going to rescue God's people from their enemies. He's finally going to establish God's kingdom. He'll even be that place to meet with God. He's going to rule over it forever. The crowds traveling with Jesus, it seems, don't know. Jesus' own disciples, it seems, don't understand. That's what we saw last week. They don't understand really who Jesus is yet. But this blind man sees. And seeing who Jesus is, he is not going to let anything stop him from seeking Jesus' help. When the crowd tries to silence his unexpected outburst, he just gets all the more shouty calling Jesus as the son of David to have mercy on him. He's helpless and insignificant. He might be, but what he's not anymore is hopeless. He's not hopeless. His hope is set on the son of David. I guess the question you should be asking at that point is, how is Jesus going to respond? There's this insignificant, blind beggar Shouting out to him, how is he going to respond? And it's wonderful for us to see that Jesus, the son of David, the promised eternal king, he sees this needy and insignificant one. He sees 
this blind beggar. Jesus has places to go. He's got things to do. He's got big plans. He's just set them out. He has set his face towards Jerusalem. It's where he must go. He's got people demanding his attention all around. There's a crowd traveling with him. There'll be a whole city excited to see him in Jerusalem. Others don't want him to pay any attention to the shouter, but he stops in his tracks and grants an audience with the king to this blind beggar. Now, it's a, it's a short conversation. It's a brief encounter, but it is totally life-changing. The blind man's faith, the faith that helps him see who Jesus truly is, the faith that helps him push through those obstacles in pursuing Jesus, the faith which makes him dare to hope that Jesus could change something that is impossible, the faith that opened the door for the impossible. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asks. Lord, I want to see. I was thinking about this this week. Um, I wondered how often we don't dare tell Jesus what we truly want. Do we really dare to believe he might do it? I was thinking particularly when it comes to taking that first step of faith in following Jesus, that can often feel like jumping off a cliff or leaping into the void, stepping out of a plane. That first step of becoming a Christian, I think, can be scary enough to keep us back from the edge. Do I really believe that he is who he says he is? Do I really dare to put my trust in that? Could everything I've been hearing, could all the things I've been thinking, could it be true? Dare I believe that Jesus would hear me, would save me, would change me? I think it takes guts to dare to believe to dare to ask, to take that step of faith and reach out, even if other people perhaps are getting in your way. Maybe maybe for someone here, you're at that door right now and you're not really sure whether you want to step over the edge or not. Maybe this story can encourage you. See how Jesus listens. See how he cares. See how he responds. See how it transforms this guy's life. Reach out to him today. Extend that faith. Act on it. In fact, why not do it right now? Here's an odd thing for a speaker to say, but why not stop listening to me? I'm going to say some more things, but you don't need to hear them. Why not stop listening to me and reach out to Jesus just now? No one else will know what's going on, but you can do that quietly among us. What does Jesus say to this guy? Receive your sight. It's just one word of command in the original language, but that's all that it takes. Jesus' word is so powerful that it can change reality with a single word. Why it's so powerful, it can create reality in the first place. With this one word of command comes healing. But more than that, when Jesus says, your faith has healed you, he uses a word with two meanings. He used this word sozo, which means to save or to heal. And the, the, the dominant meaning is to save. He says, your faith has saved you or healed you. Seems odd, doesn't it, when other languages have one word that means two things. That seems kind of unfair, particularly if you're trying to learn another language. And you're like, this, how can a word mean two things? That's, that's like totally unfair. But of course, English does this too. I mean, which, which is which? Right? Often, often context decides that one for you, but sometimes, sometimes, just now and then, you want both senses of a word in a single place. 
Like imagine if you're speaking to a super successful dairy farmer and you tell him, you can really milk cows. Right? Just every now and then you want both things in one place. And I think that's what's going on here. The blind man's faith has led to him being healed. It really has. But it's led to him being saved as well. Your faith has saved you. It's made you come to God's promised king as helpless, as dependent, as needy. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, one of the things Jesus has been trying to teach us is that we've got nothing to bring. There's nothing we can do, but the way we come to him, the only way we come to him is people with nothing, people who are helpless, people who are dependent. We come believing he welcomes people like that into the kingdom. And that is what this blind man has done. He isn't just healed. His whole life is turned upside down right here. You can see it. Verse 43, immediately as he receives his sight back, what happens next? Well, he immediately begins following Jesus. He joins Jesus' disciples um, as a committed follower, as uh, beginning to learn the ways of Jesus. Learning how to live. That's a cool story. Um, But if you've been with us before, you'll know we like to look at these stories. We like to try and understand what was going on. And then we like to think about, yeah, but so what? What does this mean for you and for me? If you're not blind, if Jesus isn't walking by right now, what does this story have to show us? I think the first thing it shows us is just how critical it is to see ourselves as needy. To understand that we really do have a desperate need. Having this story back to back with the story of the rich ruler that we looked at two weeks ago invites us to compare the two. It invites us to think about the rich ruler who seemed to have everything. He had power. He had resources. He had a lifetime of good behavior even. But he found it was not enough. He found he was still lacking. He didn't even see his true need. At the end of his encounter with Jesus, he went away sad. What he needed was an impossible change of heart. Well, this poor beggar knows he has got nothing to offer. He's got nothing except his faith, and yet he finds that faith is enough. What do we get from this? We get that it is easier to see your need when you have less. When things are less comfortable, when life is hard and not easy. But when most of us in the prosperous West live these kind of deadeningly comfortable lives, so often we're crazy busy. When we're not crazy busy, we're distracted. In those moments where we're conscious of our need, we're too easily hooked on false promises of a new iPhone, a new job, a new relationship, a new car, as if that's going to fill the need when we do see it from time to time. When I'm alert... And when I'm thinking clearly, I know none of those things are going to be actually helpful. None of those things will really deliver. I know it's not true, but still, you would see me on Black Friday looking to fill my needs in the sales, looking for happiness in a shop. Do you know that you have a need that's so vast and so deep that nothing at all can fill it? That's what the Bible tells us is true. It tells us we were made for God that our own wrong hearts have separated us from him and that there's no solution apart from desperately reaching out to him for his help to come home. Perhaps you've already seen your need. Perhaps you've already called out to this Jesus like the beggar. Perhaps now you'd love to see those people around you 
come and find Jesus too. Well, how can you help them see their needs, particularly in our, our generally comfortable world? I've been thinking about this, and the, the obvious place to start, it seems, is to try and show them how they've been separated from God by not living his way, how they face his anger rather than his love because of that. But those simple truths are something that is so overmined, uh, sorry, so undermined by our postmodern culture. Our culture tells us everyone gets to write their own rules, uh, to find their own right way to live. What's right for me might not be right for you, and vice versa. You know, the only thing that we're certain is wrong is you telling me how it is I should live. You trying to impose your right on me. That's the only thing that's definitely wrong. So we could tell people that we think God has set out a specific way that they are to live. One which we think they don't measure up to. Culture has spent years telling them that's just our private idea. It has nothing to do with them. We've got no right to impose it on them. Now, it's not that nobody ever hears that message. Or that it could never get through. It's just that most people don't intuitively feel they're in the wrong. I think most people don't live with a a deep sense of guilt. That they're out of line and they need something to fix it. Because they don't feel they could be wrong with God in the first place. And it'll be an uphill battle to change that. Now, I'm not saying we should give up on trying to explain to people what's true. But perhaps it's worth thinking about other ways we can show people they're in need as well. Because there are other ways. In this story... What sort of need do you see in this story? You see the suffering of this blind man. And that's what made it clear to him that he's in need. I think that's often true in our own experience. Hard times, difficult things that we would never choose do help us to see how much we need God and his help. Should you wish hard times on the people around you? Well, no, certainly not. But life will often throw hard times at our friends anyway. And we can be deliberate about walking with them through these things, praying for them, telling them we're praying for them, uh, encouraging them to reach out to a Jesus who cares about them as they find themselves in need, who knows their pain. Or perhaps, perhaps if you have suffered too, maybe you can use your pain, share some of your story. If you found comfort in knowing that God is in control when it seems like everything's out of control, or if you found comfort in knowing that Jesus knows what it is to suffer as you suffer, or if you found comfort in knowing that Jesus cares about every detail of your life, even the seemingly mundane, annoying, ordinary, sharing that might help them to see their need. And in our culture, everyone has a right to tell their story. So do you. There are other kinds of needs that people feel too, which we can use to call them towards Jesus. Many people feel the need for a purpose, right? Why am I here? What is life about? Why why bother carrying on? What, What do I do that really matters in the big scheme of things? Is my life going to make any difference in the world? Perhaps needs like this are covered up. They're buried in our busyness and in our distraction. But sometimes a question can unearth this. Why does that matter? Why do, you, why do you do that? Why do you work so hard? Why do you carry on? I remember watching one of my hedge fund friends trying to argue there was real value and purpose in what he did. In um, generating market liquidity had real significance in the wider world. But he and I both knew that was a bit of a stretch. 
Sometimes people hide from the need for a purpose by building their life around what is ultimately just pointless activity, but it's enough to kind of disguise this lack of purpose. Keep them busy for a while, climbing every Monroe. You know, there's a pointless purpose. Collecting stamps, skiing every weekend. Could a careful question like, what, what's the point of that? Help. Could it plant a seed of doubt that belongs there at the back of their mind? Or perhaps speaking about why you do what you do do. Because you have a purpose. You found a real purpose in Jesus. He's given you a call to follow him and go and make disciples. He's given you a call to bring to birth his right kingdom in the midst of a world that is broken and hurting. You're a part of what is the most important and the greatest project going on in the whole earth. You're a world changer. You have a life that is worth living. What about the need for significance? I mean, especially in a world that's so global, so obviously big. I think it's easier than ever to doubt that we have any real significance. We're often just this tiniest, tiny cog in a gigantic machine. In a world where it's hard to believe we have any significance. Does my vote make any difference? Does anyone care about me at all? Would anyone notice if I wasn't here? Or would things just carry on? We have a need for significance. We have this need for significance. Do you know why? Because we are significant. You're not just a, uh, a collection of chemicals, you know, a long sequence of base pairs strung together in DNA, and an accident that happened in an unimportant corner of a vast universe. You are sons and daughters of the Creator God. You are made in His image. You're made as the summit of all creation. There is nothing more important than you. You're made to rule over this creation, to bring out its vast potential. You have a purpose that is given to you by God. You are loved by the Lord of the universe himself. Crikey, that's big. You have his ear. You have his care. How do we help the world around us dare to ask the question of their significance? How do we speak about it in a way which can help others see their need? You know, it's amazing for me to know God actually listens when I pray. He cares about what I'm doing today, even though it seems ordinary. Even though I'm single, perhaps, it's amazing for me to know how deeply I am loved by God and my church. It does try to be like a family. How do you cope with being so alone, we could ask? We're all in desperate need. The question is whether we see it or not, like this blind man did. And if you've seen your need, if you've come to Jesus, then how can you help others truly see their need? Now, we can't finish on our need. Let's close with one last thing. See your need, but see the solution. See the one who can meet your needs. See the son of David the promised eternal king. Two weeks ago, we saw a rich ruler call Jesus good teacher. Just good teacher. And that's what a lot of people today would say Jesus was. Someone with some good ideas about how it is we can be nice to each other for a change. It's hard to see how that could get him killed. But anyway, the blind beggar sees his need and he sees the solution too. He sees the son of David, not just a good teacher. 
Do you see who this Jesus is? Perhaps the whole son of David thing doesn't make any sense to you. Can I invite you to talk to somebody about it? Perhaps you know someone here. Well, you could definitely talk to them. They're pretty friendly, I hope. Perhaps you don't know someone here. Then you could talk to me. Uh, I try not to be too scary. I'd love to help you explore who Jesus is, uh, who the Bible tells us he is, and what that all means. Um, So you can come and grab me for coffee. Perhaps um, it would help you to read a book. Uh, Maybe you don't want to engage with people. We've got some books in this black bookcase over here that are all free. There are some great ones about who Jesus is. You can take them away. The Bible's a great book to take away. If you uh, haven't got a Bible, take one of these blue ones away with you. We'll get more. See your need. Don't stop there. See the solution and call out to him. Let me pray as we close. Lord Jesus, please um, help us to see our need. As we're so good at covering it up because perhaps we feel so vulnerable when it's exposed or so hopeless or so helpless when it's exposed. Help us not to cover it up. Uh, but to see how desperately we're in need, how we have been made to want purpose, significance, joy, relationship, care. You've made us to want all these things, to need these things, and you are the one who can meet all these needs. Please, may we bring our needs to you, We know that you are the king who sees even unimportant little people like us. You're the king who listens. You're the king who responds. Please, would you help us to be those who cause others to consider their needs? To see um, how they have been made what they have been made for, and we pray we might even be those who point them to see you as the true king. Thank you that you are the one who gives us everything we truly need. Amen. Thank you for listening so carefully to Matt's talk there. We're going to have a short time of discussion um, in the groups around us.